Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back at the career of Jim Clark and ask where he stands among the greats. The 50th anniversary of the loss of Jim Clark, one of the all-time greats of, of motor racing, has been one of the big talking points of 2018. There's been all sorts of events and celebrations of his of his remarkable career, and we haven't really talked about Jim Clark a great deal on the Autosport podcast, so we thought it'd be a good chance just to have a bit of a look at his strengths as a driver, maybe challenge some of the assumptions and the things that are often said, and just get a bit of a deeper understanding of this phenomenal racing driver. I think no matter what your stance is on Jim Clark, he's one of the all-time greats, it's just that argument about whether he's in the top one or number five or whatever. We're not going to rank exactly, but we just want to get into uh, into the things that made him great. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to delve into Jim Clark first is Autosport Magazine editor Kevin Turner. Now, Kev, you said a few minutes ago when we were talking about the magnum opus you created on Jim Clark's greatest drives and all the work you put into it, I think you said you'd never put as much uh, much effort into a, into an article, into a feature as you did with that. So you are the world's leading authority on the greatest races of Jim Clark. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'd go quite that far. That was that was the target. So I, I read books, watched videos um, and spent a lot of time in the archive going over the races and actually looked at quite a lot of stats because I think 
um, for some of the race reports at the time, they didn't have the access or immediate access to a lot of the stats that we have now. Um, say on on Forex, there was some there's a lot of statistics for some of the races that were really useful. So probably spent more time on that one piece, which which ran in April. Um, because I, I I felt a sort of a, a an obligation to to try and look at everything possible. So I sports cars, F one, Tasman, to, even the touring car races in the Cortina, uh, and and read his own book. He he did a book in nineteen sixty four, which is interesting. Um, and then there was a book on his the release of his death as well, where quite a few of his friends had contributed, and that was that was really useful as well. Um, so yeah, certainly spend a long time on it. I believe that book's from my particular motorsport library, is it not? Oh yes, I've not returned that one. Yeah, yeah. Which one's yours? Yours is the later one, isn't it? I think. Uh, yes, yeah. with the uh, because it's got each chapters by a different significant yeah. player. There's people, and, like- and the other one is from the autosport outpost known as my dad's house. There we go. There we go. And of course, our our bottomless pit that is the archive with uh, all sorts of. Uh, all sorts of uh, magazines and uh, reports from the time. Very easy to get distracted. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's all sorts in there. My other guest is Damien Smith. Now, Damien, you've spent uh, a chunk of your career looking backwards, shall we say, at history. When it comes to somebody like Jim Clark, none of us ever saw him race. We're restricted to, to reading about him, to talking to his contemporaries, to watching what little footage there is, to just try and build up a picture of, of this of this driver and, and his, his strengths and weaknesses. So... How do you approach something like that? How do you understand a driver who's so so far disconnected from the world that, that we inhabit? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, I was born in the seventies, uh, and like like Kev, uh, had a father who was um, immersed in motor racing. So I, I kind of grew up with the sport, and you you find out through conversations uh, about the past. You then start reading about it and looking into uh, all the great books that exist and all the magazines, looking back through past issues, and also getting some getting to know someone like Nigel Roebuck, who I've been lucky enough to know for twenty odd years and worked closely with, and had so many conversations over a, a glass of wine with him about um, the people he knew and the people he's seen. You know, he didn't know Clark as a journalist. He knew he knew Clark as a, as a fan. Um, in the 60s and he watched Clark race uh, from from that perspective as well but um, I think what what impresses me about Jim Clark um, it's the aura that he had as a as a personality and as a, as a racing driver uh, everyone who knew him and everyone who witnessed him talk about this that the fact that uh, a race circuit if Clark was on the entry list there was a there was a, a buzz there was something special about the fact that he was there and out on the track uh, everyone who raced against him felt it as well and um uh it was more than just about ability it was about something about his character this very modest guy uh who was a, you know, a farmer from from scotland and um you know used to wear a cardigan to race in those you know you see those great formula one pictures of him wearing a cardigan you know not not a flamboyant man in, in any sense of the word um but um he had something that is is hard to define and um We'll get into this as further as we go in the conversation, but um, you know, the the era who he was in, most people seem to think he was head and shoulders above uh, those around him. Yeah, that seems to be the the common perception, and and justifiably so, because he kind of. I always think of it in terms of the if you're looking at Formula One greats, kind of you go from one to another, and and he kind of bridges the gap between Sterling Moss and and Jackie Stewart. I think there's no no doubt whatsoever that he was the preeminent. Yeah. Grand Prix driver of that era. There was something about the the pictures of him, the photographs of him as well. You know, um, he was a very um, th- this modesty didn't stop him being extremely cool. 
you know, with that that great sort of uh, dark blue helmet with the white peak, uh, and uh, you know, there's some fantastic uh, portraits of him. Um, I think he, particularly Jesse Alexander's portraits of him as well. This depth of in, in his eyes, you know, he had a real intensity about him. Uh, so there's a there's a certain um, charisma, I guess, that uh, comes about from, and, and also the, you know how he looked in a car with that straight armed approach he had, that style, which looks actually quite uncomfortable uh, in in a way. Uh, uh, but obviously worked for him and the way the photographers in those days to kick it onto the apex of a corner people like Michael T would be standing where Clark was cornering and you you could see his face and he you know he he um you know, particularly when he wasn't wearing a face mask you could see the expressions on his face and he he always seemed to have quite a, an expressive face in a racing car compared to some of the other the guys he raced against he was always always seemed to be pulling faces just these little details about him i was mesmerized by him as a child um growing up uh, through photo- photographs and through what I read about him, and everyone I've spoken to since, as I've got to, you know, got involved in the sport, just talks about him with this, uh, this on this other level. Well, that kind of aura and that almost unknowability gets preserved, doesn't it? Because, for example, if you look at somebody's contemporaries, you know, we've all had the chance, for example, to spend time with someone like Jackie Stewart and get an understanding of the great depth of insight uh, of motorsport. So. Kind of to all of us, Jackie Stewart is, you know, he's a a great racing driver and a legend, but he is a tangible, real person, isn't he? Whereas Jim Clark, for none of us, can can ever be, uh, can ever be that. And it's it also seems at the time, if you look at what people said, I interviewed Cedric Seltzer, who was his uh, mechanic for his first championship year, and he said that it was difficult to kind of get to know Jim Clark. He was was quite an intense kind of character with his own circle of friends and you kind of work with him it wasn't he was difficult to work with but he was just somebody who who didn't sort of put himself out there in a extrovert kind of way so even for contemporaries there was a bit of mystery there but i definitely think the passage of time sort of helps the mystique doesn't it so you look at you look at clark jill villeneuve and senna i think their statues probably increased over the time since they were since they were killed whereas you know, you can still see an interview with, you know, as you say, Jackie Stewart or Alan Prost or something. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't sort of add to the sort of mystique in quite the same way. So, I, although I can totally see that's why fans warm to these particular drivers. I think when you're trying to assess what they did, that's why I try and detach myself slightly from that and so well, what did they actually do because it's very easy for these myths to sort of grow up and never never get challenged we'll get to one or two of those later well you on. can also project what you want onto them as well because that's the Kimi Raikkonen factor you know if Jim Clark was was still around and occasionally turning up and saying because every now and again you have Jim Clark says this and people think oh what an idiot he said something stupid but they they never have the chance to kind of tarnish their legacy with reality. No, nobody is a, is, a, is a legend, is perfect. Everyone's human beings with their foibles and they're right about some things, wrong about others. But when you kind of get cut off in that in that tragic way that Jim Clark was, it's like everything's sort of frozen, isn't it? And yeah. all, all the good kind of lives on, but nothing else is, is remembered. So, so he is a almost a, a two-dimensional figure because of that. And this, he this is a legend. Yeah. He, he never, you know, we never saw him with... With sideburns and long hair, we didn't see him on slick tyres uh, and wings. Uh, we, you know, uh, only br- briefly on, uh, I guess, uh, just before he died. But but not proper wings. You know, the the full the full seventies spec F one. Um, he's frozen in time, and there is a certain uh, uh, mystique that that creates. Um, certainly, but I, th- I do think my my fascination with him is you know, is based on 
what people say about him and the people who witnessed him and, and knew him and uh, you know the, the imagery is a big part of it definitely but there was I think there was something special about it about him as a as a racing driver oh yeah I'm not uh, not for one moment uh, suggesting that there there isn't I mean in fact if you know Ed spoke to Seltzer and I've uh, read his book and also we had the fortune good fortune to talk to Jackie Stewart about these things as well and he always talks about Clark being you know being the greatest um, so yeah he's absolutely up there uh, in the t- you know in the top five top ten some people have him number one, head and shoulders above everyone else, and that's perhaps where I start to start to part company with them. But but yeah, no, he's absolutely in the he's, he's in the top echelon, isn't he? No, very much so. No, no doubt about that. Well, let, let's have a little bit of a look into Jim Clark and his his strengths and what he had as a driver. The obvious place to start is the speed. Now that's the the prerequisite of any great racing driver. You've at least got to be very fast. And ideally, super fast. Kev, when you look at what Jim Clark did, was he unquestionably the the fastest driver of that of that era? Certainly between Moss and Moss and Jackie Stewart. Yeah, I think you have to you have to say so. I think that my, my issue sometimes comes with the head and shoulders thing. Um, for example, in '67 with the Lotus 49, uh, which is I reckon we we worked out to be the tenth most dominant Formula One car of all time. Um, obviously he was going to be a way ahead um, and the only person that was potentially going to be ahead, uh, up there with him would be Graham Hill um, obviously at that time a one time world champion and Graham did better against Clark than is remembered but he had incredible unreliability but even if you take that out of it you know Clark had six poles Hill had three um, I think you'd have to say that, that Jimmy was the quickest um, he had more poles than wins um, where it is a bit difficult is it's very difficult to decide how much of that is 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 Jimmy and how much of it is the Lotus during the 60s because apart from Graham he didn't really have a top level teammate um, and um, the, the 1964 Rand Grand Prix where uh, <laughs> Clark had injured himself uh, with extracurricular activity prior to the race um, Colin Chapman asked a, a, a then rising Formula 3 star to jump into the Lotus 33 uh, who then um, put it on pole and won from the back in the second heat? Now that rising star was Jackie Stewart, but that's effectively like saying that you know a, a Lance Stroll jumps into Lewis Hamilton's car and, and it goes quicker. So I think that you have to say he did have a car advantage more often than not, which must have played a part in that. Um, but uh, I think he was also able to be quick while looking after the machinery, which was absolutely essential with Colin Chapman Lotuses of the period. Yeah, I, mean, I think with Clark, there's lots of what ifs, um, as there always is with these great drivers. But particularly the fact that um, you know Sterling was cut down still in his prime, at, you know, Easter Monday '62, um, and when Jimmy was just starting to get into his his stride, we missed out on something so special there. You know, Moss, but again, Moss would have been in a in an uncompetitive Ferrari versus a um, a Lotus Twenty Five that was was getting better and better. So uh, the likelihood is Jimmy would have would have beaten Sterling because the machinery was better. But in '62, it would have been interesting yeah. to see what would have happened after that. But, happened after but, there, but I think there's that, there's that famous line, isn't there, about Sterling saying, "You know, I'm going to have to have parity of equipment, effectively," hmm. um, because he'd seen Clark. Um, one of the, one of the races on the, the list that I did was the '61 South African Grand Prix, where Clark actually spun, giving Moss the lead, and he caught and passed him. And and in his book. Uh, Clark's very sort of magnanimous about it and said, well, I did have a more modern car. But I think it's events like that that made Moss think, oh, I probably can't keep rocking up with inferior equipment. Yeah. And I think 
one of this is much more difficult to prove but there has been suggestions that one of the reasons for that is that, the, that those were the two first drivers to cotton on to rotating the car under braking Clark sort of talks about it a little bit at times in his book um, not in the way that we would talk about it now and all the top drivers do it now but it was something that wasn't really developed until the mid-engined uh, Formula 1 cars came along Moss twigged it probably quickest and Clark was next along um, JYS realised it after driving the Lotus um, and I think that's probably not a coincidence that they were the top three drivers during that era yeah. so he was uh, yeah we, but we were robbed either end yeah because, because the, the, the Stuart battle never quite happened no either, because it, so. well funny enough the, not in Formula 1 so uh, as part of my uh, research into this I did look into Tasman and the closest thing we got to a Clark uh, a Clark I'm going to grab my notes here Clark Stewart fight with the two Tasman series in 66 and 67 now in 66 probably Jackie Stewart had marginally the fastest car with the BRM and did come out on top um, and won the championship in the following year when there was the, the they were they were really evenly matched and there were a couple of races where they'd have a duel for the lead and finish a lap clear of the field so it was we were getting a bit of a taster I think of what was to come had Clark not been killed and then Joe Wallace with Matra um, but in 67 Stuart had more unreliability, so Clark won the championship, so it was one title each. So I think when they were kind of warming up, they were already by that stage probably the two best drivers in the world. Um, but Stuart was, you know, obviously held back by the appalling BRMs he was driving. And just as he got into a match, of course, we only won one race into 68, and then Clark was gone. So either end of Clark's career, mm. we sort of missed out on the kind of the big duel, a bit like Senna and Schumacher, really. Well, it's, it's amazing that. There have been multiple times where that kind of thing has has happened. You've missed out missed out on this, and it would have been fascinating to see a kind of a Jackie Stewart who was still learning and becoming the Jackie Stewart that he was to become against a, an absolute Clark, absolute peak Clark. Still, that would have been a, mm. a fascinating battle. But I think the, the the difficult thing when it comes to the pace, and you mentioned it earlier, Kev, was the whole question of of being in the Lotus, which is often the the quickest car. And it, it's interesting, I, and I refer, I had a look at this interview I did with Cedric Seltzer, his, his mechanic before, and he said, well, you couldn't, you can't really talk about Jim Clark without talking about Colin Chapman. And this this axis they created, they're, they're kind of inseparable. So it, it, everyone always says, oh, it's Clark and Lotus, isn't it? Now, some people will say that, well, if you only win with one mark, that diminishes what you do. I'm, I'm a little bit wary of that because that's so much dictated by circumstances. Yes, Jackie Stewart won world championship races in what four different types of chassis, uh, brands of chassis, but he had the opportunity to do that, which Jim Clark never had. But also the strength of Jim Clark was that ability to work with someone like Colin Chapman, who a hell of a lot of drivers found more difficult to to work with, should we say. I think one of the interesting things about Clark is that um, there's people who knew him talk about towards the end of his life, he was changing um, he was a tax exile through 67. Uh, his attitude to life was opening up. I guess the world was opening up. He was living in Paris. Uh, there's signs that he was losing confidence and faith in Chapman and their friendship was a little bit more strained towards the end of his life. And there is a possibility that had he lived, he would have left Lotus and gone elsewhere. And that would have been obviously fascinating to see. Personally, I've just got no doubt that if he'd gone somewhere else, he'd, he'd have still been the, you know, uh, he's proven his ability. He, he didn't need Colin Chapman t- to be Jim Clark, but the combination of the two of them was a force uh, the like of which, you know, we've only seen a few times in history. I think the, the question I have is, um, with a lot of these combinations, so the other ones that kind of spring to mind, 
um, I guess would be Jack Stewart and Ken Tyrrell more recently, the sort of Marcus Schumacher, Ross Braun situation. And in those, you kind of feel like the driver is, is at least an equal part of that. Whereas certainly earlier in his career, uh, Clark's career, I don't think that was the case. I think Chapman was the dominant personality in driving things along and the innovative design and all the rest of it. But yes, there's definitely enough to suggest. I think that there was, he, dro- he drove the IndyCar in 67, didn't he, at Riverside, which had a sort of very rudimentary engine cover come wing. And I think off the back of that, he decided that it would be a good idea to try that on the Lotus. And I think they cut a bit of helicopter blade or something to try it. And Colin, uh, and he was there, he was on, by that stage, he was confident enough to think, well, I can try this and I can see what this is trying to do. Colin Chapman found out about it and, and had a you know meltdown, basically, and told them to take it off the car. So that's the kind of tension that was beginning to, I think, Clark was probably becoming more of a personality within that combination. So it would have been fascinating to see if he could have then taken that somewhere else and built something the same, or whether he would have just been another yeah. one of the top drivers. I mean, Clark, Clark was Chapman's muse in a way, wasn't he? In a, and and um, he he built these cars, and and but he knew that with Colin, with with, with Jimmy driving them, he knew that uh, the, the driving factor he had he had the best out there to, to prove the machinery. You know, and the, the the number two drivers we talk about, it's a little. I guess it's a little bit like the, Sh- the Schumacher thing, where Schumacher never really had a teammate uh, that was a threat to him, and that's because the team was built around Jimmy. But also, there was no one put in there who who could really live with him. I mean, some got, some had a good try. You know, I think you know people like um, Mike Spence was a was a was a really good driver who who. He wasn't a Jimmy Clark though, but he was. You know, there were, there were good people went in, went in into that number two Lotus seat. Trevor Taylor was a, another good solid uh, uh, driver. Um, but when you've got Jimmy Clark, why why would you put anyone else in? Why why would you have a second? You know? Yeah, no, I'm not. I wouldn't. I'm not questioning uh, the sort of Colin Chapman Lotus approach. It just obviously when you're assessing drivers, it's always easier when you've got. I mean, actually, of course, it isn't really because even the Senna Prost era at McLaren, you sort of get this whole thing of oh, one was supported by Honda and all this. There's always some story as to why someone gets an edge over someone else. Yeah. So it's it's more a question mark than a criticism, if that makes it's, sense. I mean, the interesting one would have been if Surtees had stayed beyond that first year in '60 and. If the whole Innis Island contract thing hadn't blown up and, and Surtees had basically bailed on Lotus. Um, I, I don't think that would have been sustainable from knowing what we know about the characters involved that Surtees and Chapman were never going to work with each other for too long. Um, but having those two bulls in, in the Lotus field would have been incredible. Yeah, and I think Surtees always felt a little bit sort of irritated that the he wasn't regarded in quite the same league. So I think he was probably, well, he was definitely closer to Clark than 25 wins versus six. Uh, yeah. I mean, John could also sometimes be his own worst enemy, but then I can't really imagine Clark having made a go of it at Ferrari in the way that Surtees did, because I think you probably needed that kind of personality to, to make something happen. Yeah. Um, so maybe they were, in a, in a way, maybe they were in the right places at the right time, and had John not fallen out with Ferrari in 66, he would have almost certainly been a double world champion as well. Yeah, I mean, John kept putting himself in the position where he had to build something up from, from yeah, scratch. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, yeah, that was a completely different, different situation and scenario to, to the Clark Lotus one. Digging a little bit more deeply into the, into the whole car advantage topic Kev you've done a little bit of uh, research into this and trying to quantify how much pace advantage there really was in the Lotus during the well mainly the mid 60s the, the sort of Jim Clark's pomp um, I guess it would be and it does throw up some interesting uh, interesting results Yes, um, and in fairness, I sort of went into this kind of expectancy colossal Lotus advantages, and it, 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 it's there, but it's not that huge. So um, if as a baseline, if you look at the Ferrari-Mercedes gap last year, 
was 0.178%, I think, on super times, uh, which is the way we assess pace over a season. Basically, it's peak pace of the car. That yeah, peak pace, which obviously doesn't explain everything. It doesn't factor in reliability, difference between race pace and qualifying. So it's not... It, you know, it's not definitive, but it's it's usually a decent pointer at who's got the quickest car at very least. Um, so yeah, in sixty two, it was point two six nine percent over BRM, so a bit more of an advantage than Lewis had over Seb last year. Uh, in sixty three, which he dominated, of course, it was a sort of a record breaking seven wins, I think, from ten races. Point four seven four percent, so that is a bit bit bigger. But then the next two years, sixty four and sixty five, are absolutely minuscule. So sixty four is point zero four seven percent over Brabham. Um, which is the Dan Gurney factor at Brabham. Um, and then 65, 0.089% over BRM. So that is basically nothing. So in that sense, the driver, the drivers can make the difference. In 64, actually, it's a, it's a bit of an outlier statistically for the 60s in that the top four teams were covered by half a percent. So that's four teams within a smaller margin of the faster car than Red Bull managed last year. Um, against against Mercedes, which I think is pretty remarkable, and of course that's that championship did go down to the wire um, with three drives and three different teams. Uh, and I think you'd have to say that one plus for Clark is his uh, not only his ability to get the most out of the the car every time. You know, he didn't he didn't really have an off day in these these stats. He's always up there. If he doesn't finish, it's normally because the car's broken. Um, uh, but he's also he's he's pacing season finales. So when the pressure's really on, sixty-two South African Grand Prix against Graham Hill, disappearing down the road, car broke, would have been champion. Sixty-four, oh, I've got, he's got he's got to win and hope that Graham Hill and uh, John Surtees don't finish in particular places behind. Disappears off down the road, car breaks at the end, loses the championship. So he it, it, when the, when it came to the crunch, he he would he should he, have had four consecutive. World he, championships. He, he could he could yeah could well. Although John Surtees always pointed out that he had a appalling reliability in the Ferrari until they stopped worrying about Le Mans um, which is probably a fair point I think to get through I think he once said that if you got through a season with the car working from start to finish twice in a year you were you were pretty happy um, which is something we forget now with cars that are, you know they've got to have engines that last forever and it's all very impressive um, but I think that, that feeds into the how soft he was on equipment again you know the, the team would say you know, I think you, when you interviewed Cedric Selser you know point out that the, the kit the brakes the gearboxes were always less worn on Clark's cars and that was a serious factor that was a serious plus to have in those days particularly I think in a Colin Chapman Lotus but generally anyway Now I think that's one of the particularly in that era one of the big positives about Jim Clark obviously you take the speed without uh, speed as a given but that ability to make sure the car got to the end like you say Lotus weren't always the most fragile and clearly he was factoring that into into his driving and the other thing impressed me that when going through the great races is that he was also, a, you know, we talk about having bandwidth these days, you know, you've got to be able to think about strategy and all the rest of it while still driving on the limit. And I think he did, I think he did have that because there are a couple of races, um, 63 French Grand Prix and 65 British Grand Prix where he had car problems. Um, and in particular, the one at Silverstone in 65, he was driving on the ignition switch uh, because there was low, low oil pressure. So he was switching it off to prevent oil surge and the car you know, running the bearings, basically, uh, while maintaining a, trying to maintain a lead over Graham Hill, who I think broke the, did the lap record on the last lap to try and get to him. I think the BRM was brakeless, so that gives you an idea of the, car, the state of the cars at the end of the races. But that's that's not the driver. That's not the driver of a two dimensional. Just get in, you know, drive it on talent, and then you know, forget everything else. You know, that's someone who's thinking about what he's doing. I do think one of the things that 
perhaps counts against Jim Clark is the the era he was predominant in. Obviously, it was the one and a half litre formula in 61-65. He won both his championships in that. He could easily have won a, a championship after the return to uh, return to three litres after that, but but didn't. And there were times in that period where the opposition was quite quite shallow. Um, and I think it's he doesn't control who he's up against. He doesn't control the regulations, but does that make any difference? Would it if if he'd if he lived through sixty eight and won the championship, which chances are he would have done? Graham Hill went on to win, but Clark had already won the the first world championship race of the year. Would that change things by just saying, well, he, if he could win in sixty eight when it was stronger, um, bigger cars? Then I think clearly Kev's, that answers that. I think Kev's stats actually have just proven that the the, the one and a half liter era was actually super competitive. That although the twenty five and the thirty three were the best cars. Um, uh, they weren't by far and away the best cars, and that, you know there, was, there were good Ferraris, very good Brabhams, uh, and, you know, BRMs were, were pretty strong through most of the year as well. Um, so personally, I don't I don't agree that it was a weak era. Um, and from '66, um, the return to power and three liter formula, uh, fascinating time where um, most people took their off the ball, and and you know, Brabham. Uh, did the right thing and um, found a reliable engine, you know, uh, in the in the Repco, mated it to what was a very good, solid Ron Toronac chassis, and just came up with with a, a car that was, um, you know, um, well sorted. And on the back of it, they won two world championships on the drop, you know. Um, and uh, as a driver, Jack Brabham could easily have been a four time world champion, <laughs> but um, you know, he would say could have been five. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, he, he 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 would have he would have said seventy as well. Yeah, but you know, Lotus, Lotus, uh, you know, they didn't have the DFV in '66. They, you know, they it was a plan that came to, came together for '67, and then in '67 it then was unreliable, and they didn't get the best from it. So to, you can't really judge Jimmy Clark's three liter career on the basis of you know he didn't win that many races, he didn't win many championships, didn't win any championships because uh, you know the there was exceptional circumstances. I think if uh, if he'd lived beyond April seventh, sixty eight, um, chances are, you know, uh, it'd have been him and not Graham Hill who'd have won the, in one of the championship of the forty nine. No, I, I agree with you completely. And I, I when I was doing this comparison of of the different cars, the the closest eras in terms of the spread of the field were the DF period during the DFVs and two thousands, early two thousands. Despite the Ferrari dominance, actually, it's quite interesting. But um, but the sixties, the, the mid sixties, one and a half liter era is not far behind. And I think when you've got you know Gurney, Surtees, uh, Graham Hill, yeah, and obviously the early JYS, I'm, I'm sort of fairly comfortable with that being a pretty competitive era. And also, we know that Jimmy could drive more powerful cars. In fact, in his book, he says he prefers the big sports cars that he started off in, yeah. as in his early days, of course, very early with uh, Border Eva's team. He was driving Jaguar D-Type and Lister, and he and he loved them and thought they were great. Well, I think he um, certainly, given what he did within, also outside of, yeah. of racing Formula um, One cars, shows he was uh, clearly and, versatile and adaptable. And yeah, absolutely. And can you name a driver who immediately fell off in terms of competitiveness when the slicks and wings appeared? I don't. I don't think it changed the. No. order really of, of who was good I think all the same people were still good because they just 
they're still good. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you take a top driver out of any year and plop them into another with enough, you know, all the experience of data and all the rest of it, whatever they need to get up to speed, the thing that made them great in one era will make them great in another. So, yeah, I wouldn't hold that that particular thing against against Clark. I'm sure he would have won the championship in 68. What I would have been interested to see is a, is a, is a Clark-Stewart yeah. fight in 69 and yeah. then Rin as well what would have yeah. happened to Rin would he have gone to Lotus that would have been interesting maybe yeah. not maybe to have stayed at Brabham so you'd have had uh, you know or Jackie Ix Ix at Ferrari Rin at Brabham Clark at Lotus JYS at Inamatra and then mm. a Tyrrell pretty fant- fantastic that would been cool wouldn't it yeah absolutely I think it would have been fascinating to see Clark go on for a few more years That that's because he Formula 1 moves into a pretty remarkable era quite quickly in the few years after and I think one of the reasons I hold Jackie Stewart in such high regard is because he was able to rise above everyone really in an era where there were so many good drivers you know the, co- the competitive order was was moving around quite but, regularly but there weren't more competitive drivers in Jackie Stewart's era than Jimmy Clark's I would say no but there were more competitive cars so there were more potential winners I think so that's when it's really, really tight and you get lots and lots of winners and, and Jay Weston. So I think where I would, and this is only a gut feeling, but this is where I think I, the why I would put Stuart ahead of Clark, which I know would upset lots of people, is I can't see Clark doing the kind of working in practice to get that longer fourth gear at Monza 69 to say that he, I just, I think he would have been instinctive in a wheel-to-wheel situation. I don't actually, I know one of the criticisms against him is not great wheel-to-wheel, but I didn't really find any real evidence he didn't have to do it very often no but I I think he would have had to do it I I couldn't find much evidence through that Um, although I did find some evidence of him cracking under pressure which we can come back back to but in terms of yeah world to world stuff I think he would have been up there with the best of them but I, I, I just feel that Jackie Stewart probably would have been able to outthink Clark more often than the other way around in an equal situation well let's just briefly address that wheel to wheel thing because that's often raised as as a weakness of Clark and I find that one a little bit odd because often it you can't really criticise someone for being out front and and dominating. Really, I don't, I don't feel that's a particularly fair fair criticism. It's like you've done your job really well, but you haven't you haven't showed that if you've done your job a bit worse, yeah, you you could yeah. dig yourself out of that hole. You think well, so okay, I mean, you said you had a look and you couldn't really find any evidence. Yeah, so the, in terms of so in terms of wheel to wheel, there was the ninety sixty six Dutch Grand Prix, which is also a rare example of him being in a in a an inferior Lotus. It's a two-litre Lotus against the two three-litre Brabham Repcos. And he basically takes the fight to Brabham and Holm. Holm falls back and he fights Brabham, gets past him and does actually start to pull away. Jack starts to come back at him and then the Lotus breaks on him, basically. He comes into pitch and finishes third. And there's not a hint of a mistake. Uh, the track's slippery, you know, Zandvoort, Dusty, all the rest of it. And he's absolutely immaculate in a, in a wheel-to-wheel fight. So that's the sort of uh, an example of him clearly not folding. And then against that was the sort of cracking under pressure. Um, there are a couple of Tasman examples, but the one that's probably more famous, I suppose, is 1965 Brandsatch Race of Champions. And I think it's interesting that it's Dan Gurney applying the pressure because obviously, as we famously later found out, Gurney was the one guy Clark really sort of rated. And Gurney and that Brabham, um, I'd like to do a piece on that because that 64 65 period of Gurney and the Brabham, that, that should have been a championship contending car. And it just broke too often. But he was putting the pressure on, on Clark at the race of champions. I think Clark had even won the first heat. So he didn't even really have to worry too much. And um, uh, and he crashed while Dan caught him and put pressure on him. And he actually went off and ripped a wheel off the car. And So he wasn't he wasn't perfect and error-free in the way that sometimes it gets suggested. But I also don't think that there was any weakness in terms of uh, in terms of wheel-to-wheel fights. There are, there are a number of examples. One of the ones that made it into this was a 68 
uh, I think it was South African Grand Prix, where Chris Amon's Ferrari, I think, was a quicker race car. But Clark did that, what we would now consider to be great race management. Of He, he nailed the start, got the lead, and um, he, Amon could not get past. He, he got alongside quite a few times. And remember, this is before we've got dirty air and all the rest of it. So he had to be perfect. And they finished almost side by side, and it was an hour-long race. And Clark didn't buckle under that pressure. So, yeah, I think, I think he was, I don't think there's a, an obvious wheel-to-wheel failing there. Clark drove in so many different types of cars, as we talked about, and this whole versatility thing and the stamina he had, uh, as they all did, as, as uh, in that era where they would they would go from weekend to weekend uh, and from continent to continent, driving all sorts of different things. Um, in, in anything he drove, it's very hard to see a weakness. He wasn't infallible. He did make mistakes. Um, but they they all do. You you will not find any yeah. racing driver who didn't make mistakes. No, it's, and and that's why they're interesting. You know, you don't want to, you know who wants perfection, really. I mean, but he, you know, he. Um, I just think overall, they all knew who who was best. He knew it as well. He wouldn't probably wouldn't have admitted to it publicly because he was the kind of character he was. But he knew he knew the best guys always know they're a cut above, and he, I think everything you you see about Clark, he knew that as well. I think there's yeah, there's no doubt that that. The peers, it was Fangio, then it was Moss, then it was Clark. I think that's that. That's pretty yeah. clear. In fact, there's some multiple reports where they say we've we've not seen driving like this since Sterling, um, and it, I think it's it's almost explicitly said that he's sort of taken the the, the, the baton on really. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. We did almost ten years ago now um, this F1's greatest drivers poll where we we got uh, a bunch of. Uh, former World Championship Grand Prix drivers, well, and active ones, actually over 200 of them, to vote for their top 10 in a secret ballot. And uh, Ayrton Senna came out on top, which was probably fairly predictable. Uh, Jim Clark came out fifth in that. And mm. considering there was a certain degree of time period bias in that, because obviously the more recent you get, the more drivers there are still around to to vote. So there, there were kind of fewer of contemporaries for, for Jim Clark to, to vote for him. Interestingly, he was one place ahead of, of Jackie Stewart. Mm. Um and it was Prost fourth, Frangio third, and Schumacher second behind Senna. So it's just interesting to see that, you know, still he was able to hold his own in, in that. And I think it's very, very difficult to argue he shouldn't be in the top yeah. five. You get a very different set of results if you run that that poll now, wouldn't you? And that's the thing. It's, uh, um, think things change as you go on. And, and perceptions of careers change. Um, you know, is Schumacher remembered quite how we thought he would be now? You know, you, you could argue... Maybe not, but I, I happen to think that Michael Schumacher in the mid nineties, um, he enjoyed uh, a superiority over his contemporaries that no other racing driver has enjoyed. I don't think anyone has ever been as better than the rest more than Michael Schumacher. I would, yeah. The the only one I would put up against that is I think after Fangio retired, I think Moss was miles better than everyone else, and 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 chose to rock up in. In inferior cars, just to make it interesting. So I, I think I think that Moss and Schumacher are the two in terms yeah. of yeah, their gap over the opposition. I, but yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree that it's the other. But another way to assess the drivers is how they move the game on. So I think you know Moss, you could yeah. argue, was kind of the first sort of professional. JYS was the first modern driver, um, and Schumacher moved it on in terms of fitness and all that sort of stuff. You know, before him, even some of the top drivers would be sort of pulled out of the car, yeah. and now they all get out and it all looks all very very easy. Less so with the new cars because they obviously <laughs> they're really quick. I yeah. uh, don't think Clark moved things on, so that would count against him. But I mean, that's that's when you're nitpicking between who's the greatest of all time and who's second sort you, of thing. You, you can maybe argue that Clark was the first one to create quite such a tight relationship yeah. with, with the team. Yeah, you could say and that, and to be yeah. so integral to 
the success of the team. Jackie Stewart was in the same way, but was anyone before Clark able to do that? One of the main criticisms of Fangio, amusingly, the flip side of this coin that people criticise, oh, well, Clark did, only did it in Lotuses, then people say, well, Fangio just moved from team to team, so whoever was best. So mm. Fangio never created that. And, well, there were relationships with, with teams and manufacturers before that. Perhaps the Clark-Chapman axis is the first example of that in Grand Prix. I think so. Racing. I think you know, you, Sterling had it to an extent with Rob Walker, um, but Rob wasn't a constructor. He, he, yeah, he's running Rob his wasn't running Chapman in that no, way, was he? No, mm. I mean, you know, Ch- Chapman was a, another another completely different type of beast. And I think you're right. They they set a template about driver and um, constructor forming this sort of bond, um, and the res- you know the results speak for themselves. Really, well, it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's what what would Lotus have achieved in that period with another leading driver not as much because for example you can talk about I'm, I'm convinced of it I mean yeah. clearly Graham Hill who I think is a driver who gets underrated I, I agree I, I find this whole you get this projection of Jim Clark as the the great natural talent who just rocked up never had to try and was just brilliant and Graham Hill is this hard trier who somehow is lessened by the fact he had to work hard the reality was completely different but then you ask well Graham Hill won the championship in the Lotus 49 which Clark spent quite a long time the previous year Kind of getting on top of it. it was a tricky car well, when it was when it was well it was always a tricky car in fact but particularly when it was first running so you sort of wonder well what role did Clark play in what Hill did yeah. kind of in his memory if you like in in sixty eight you, you know you're guessing but that that was very important yeah you won't I don't suppose you'll ever really know um, that one but Graham Hill was. I think he's he's vastly underrated, and and he, yeah, he's we like to put him in this box as the as the grafter. Um, uh, but you know, it, you know, it's true. His role in developing the forty nine uh, was immense in terms of what you know the, the input he had in that car, uh, and Clark benefited from that, I'd say. But um, you know, over a season, only one of them was really going to emerge as the. Yeah, I think in a way, Graham's greatest achievement really was the way that he was a little bit like Damon at Williams in 94 the way he responded and picked up the Lotus team and yeah. and, and and whether he'd won the championship or not it was an amazing personal achievement to do that I think I think even Colin Chapman turned up for the next Grand Prix or certainly not um, not in the start of the weekend and Graham effectively was deep team manager and lead driver yeah. and galvanising team I think that's an incredible personal achievement that's one of those funny little echoes isn't it that Graham Hill won the Spanish Grand Prix, which was the next World Championship round in 68. And Damon Hill won the Spanish Grand Prix in 94, which was two rounds on because Monaco was yeah. before Spain that year. And, and then went on to have a have a run at the title, even though he, um, Schumacher, rightly I would say, regardless of what happened in, in Adelaide, Schumacher was the leading driver that season. Yeah. Kind of di- digressing there a, a little bit. But and actually, Graham Hill's an example of how a driver hanging around for a bit too long can maybe affect their perception. It's very hard for us to to judge because that's before our time how that changed things but if Hill obviously the moment everything changed for him was when he broke, broke his legs at Watkins Glen in 69 and then he's still hanging around as late as 75 not qualifying for the Monaco Grand Prix Yeah, and you know over the hill and damaged avoid the, excuse the pun of that over the hill but who knows how much impact that has on the way yeah. Graham Hill's seen I mean I know some of that perception was there at the time because you see it before, before that but you know who knows what would have happened for Jim Clark, what what if he the the accident in the Deutschland Trophy at Hockenheim was a bit different and he broke both his legs and then came back and wasn't the same driver for yeah. I, I can't see him hanging around for quite as long as Graham uh, Hill did. But again, you, know, you, you never know. It's this yeah, it's this thing again about Clark's frozen in time that we didn't get to see him decline. 
you know he was still at the height of his powers when he when he was was killed and we uh, we didn't see how he had responded to the threat of a Jackie Stewart or a Yock and Rint um and how how he'd handled that and whether he'd accepted it and walked early or whether he'd have battled on in a, in a Graham Hill style it's hard to see him doing the Graham Hill thing i think you know if you'd seen the signs he, you get the feeling with Clark that he'd have gone on to find other things in life but yeah it would have been interesting to, to and would, would he have gone back to being a farmer as people have often said, or would he, you know, had his mindset changed and would he have gone on to something completely different? Yeah, and it was interesting reading the thoughts of the, the people immediately after he, you know, he died, actually. There was um, Jabby Cromback, his friend, journalist. There was, um, I spoke to John Surtees, Jackie Stewart, Colin Chapman. So it had all these different people that knew him to one degree or another and they couldn't agree uh, on what they thought he would do something oh no he would definitely have gone back to the farm and others were like well he's, he'd seen a new world now he was quite happy to go you know he wanted to, he liked the international lifestyle so maybe he'd have hung around doing sort of something else but um yeah it's one of those sort of great great mysteries that we won't get and, to find out and it's it's easy to forget that jim clark was only 32 when he died he had oh, quite a lot of yeah, he, had, he had a lot of years left in him yeah. and you know what was he seven years younger than graham hill so let's say he carried on as as late as Graham Hill. Is, is Jim Clark failing to qualify for the 1982 Monaco? I see more. I can't. I can't see him lasting that long. But it it, it shows just how much time there still was. Yeah. To keep going, you know, we talk about inevitably what happened in 68, 69, but you know, he could still be hanging around in in 75, 76, which seems completely because he's frozen in that black and white wingless era, isn't he? Yeah. But it wouldn't have taken long for him to break in, and then suddenly he's in a whole new. A whole new era, which is impossible. It's almost impossible to picture, isn't it? Well, look at look at Jack Brabham. You know, he yeah, just at the start of the whole mid-engined revolution, and still good enough to win a Grand Prix with slicks and winnings in nineteen seventy. And obviously, Clark was that bit younger, so yeah, it's easy to see him into the. But he could have carried on after JYS retired and come up against Nicky Lauda. Which is absolutely, uh, which is incredible. a bit weird. Doesn't seem right, does it? But well, it's actually not impossible. It's like Gilles Villeneuve could have been up against well. That could have been up against Nathan Senna is McLaren peak later yeah. right? it's all these, these fascinating uh, uh, kind of possibilities but I think what there's no doubt of is that Clark would have risen to the challenges for me the thing that always defines whether these great drivers are able to continue it's either physical limitations which happened more often back then when you could get more serious injuries nowadays thankfully injuries are, are rare so it's more just the as well as a just general deterioration of age but just that desire the focus, the the determination, the need to keep doing it, and so that's the imponderable question with Clark: was he was he a year away from retirement, or was he quite happy just to keep going and maybe win cars come along and you think, oh, this is a fantastic challenge, I'm liking all this, and does he just keep going? Yeah, and I don't think we should also lose sight of the of the, of the fact about the way that Jim Clark went about motor racing and won. You know, he was a a, um, a true sportsman. Um, you never read anything about him. Having an edge to him in that in that sense, uh, he was you know honest. Uh, he was a stylist. I mean, you think about him in Lotus Cortinas, um, you know, and uh, I sort of said the beginning about his his straight arm style and the single seater. Um, you know, he was beautiful to watch as a, as a as a as a as a performer, um, and I think that counts for something. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to add honest to that because when I was uh, doing some of the research, one of the races I had to look at. Um, which is probably his most famous race, arguably. 1967 Italian Grand Prix at Monza, puncture early on, drops a lap behind, fights back, gets the lead at the end, has a fuel uh, pickup problem and finishes third. 
And that was heralded as this amazing drive. Even now, you, if you go on forums and things, it gets suggested as one of one of, if not the greatest Grand Prix drivers of all time. And he was quite dismissive about that, um, uh, according to, to Cronbach. And uh, I find that quite interesting. And I kind because of, I kind of remember seeing footage of that. Uh, on one of the sort of historic F1 things as a kid and seeing how fast the Lotus blew past Jack Brabham's Brabham for the lead and thought that looks like almost a different category. And that's pretty much what, what Clark said was that it was a track that wasn't really up, it wasn't really a driver's track and I had the fastest car. So it wasn't anything as, it wasn't anything like as good as 62 Nürburgring, which is what he thought was his greatest race, which I, I agreed with when I'd finished my research. But the other thing I did check, check on that was this catching up a lap. Um, comparing it to Graham Hill in the lead of the race, across, once he'd caught the pack and the two of them had broken away, Clark took two seconds, I think, out of Hill over a 30-lap stint, which is basically very small, mm. whereas some of his other races, in the wet in particular, he'd be seconds of that faster. So I think he was very honest in saying, well, this was a, gr- this was a good drive, I really enjoyed this one, and that one, was, you know, that one wasn't. Um, and I think honesty is always a, always a good way for drivers to assess their own abilities and move forward. I, I, the way my mind works, I always end up comparing sport and motor racing to music. And, you know, he was the same era. And for me, he was the Beatles, you know. And for me, that's that's good enough. He he knew he was a great performer, uh, but it was also the way he went about it that people loved him uh, for as well. And that's that's the analogy I can always bring myself back to. Yeah, that's, a, for me. that's a very, very good way to look at it. I think the the sad thing is that it's not possible to watch these drivers in action, you know, I, when covering Formula One, I spend a lot of time watching trackside, and you can see how certain drivers perform. And I think the style that Jim Clark had, that ability, you know, to quite early rotation of the car, keep the minimum speed up, but without sort of feeling like he was forcing the issue, just letting the car do the work, is just the kind of driver I always like watching. So I suspect if I was 50 years ago watching trackside, I'd be thinking I'd, I'd see it, perhaps in a way that you almost can't now. You can you can read about it, but you can't really get a feel for that delicacy at such. You could probably see the difference between the average and the, the greats much clearer than no question yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, there's a great little story so just remind you there's a great story in his in his book where he talks about because he obviously helped develop the Cortina which I think he found quite a hoot actually and they, I can't remember where it is it might have been Snetterton and they, at that stage they had tyre markers uh, on the apex of corners and he he realised during the course of this run that it was picking the inside wheel up so he just gradually got closer and closer until he could time it so that he was hot he was essentially cutting the track by having the the wheel in the air over the tyre marker uh, as the apex and so he'd, he'd spotted that weird idiosyncrasy that must have been pretty impressive to watch as well and gradually getting more and more <laughs> of the car over this tyre with the with the hop of the front wheel but also that ability to be on that limit that's a difference in those days that you'll see with the drivers that the best drivers are able to operate closer to the limit consistently without it catch without sort of going off and being injured or, or killed i mean the, clark, the way clark was driving had nothing to do with what happened to him in, in 1968 then that was uh that was outside of his control but now drivers can sit on that limit and if it goes wrong well i'll be in the barrier and fine but you know the difference you could see to be able to live on that fine edge that all the great drivers are able to do is, is a remarkable remarkable uh achievement i guess you could say 
Well, before we finish, Kev, you should probably quickly run through your your Jim Clark's greatest drive list um, because you did put a lot of work into that, and it is interesting to uh, to, to pick out those. Now, I'd, I'd ask you not to go for your honourable mentions that uh, I always deride you for uh, for adding because I think if you've got to go for a top ten, you go for a top ten. Yeah, I've had some interesting discoveries, but just that. I've had some interesting conversations about that because um, my copy for this particular feature was way too long to the point where even the web guy said, no, come on. <laughs> so honourable mentions are probably going to have to be uh, discarded from my future list. So yeah, I'll just stick to the 10. So 10th was the 61 South African Grand Prix that I mentioned earlier, uh, defeating Moss after spinning off. 68 Australian Grand Prix under pressure from aiming the whole time. The 63 French Grand Prix, uh, where he nursed the car to win by over a minute despite a broke, despite two broken valve springs. 63 Entry 200, which we didn't talk about, but he took over teammate Trevor Taylor's car and uh, obliterated his own lap record from the year before's British Grand Prix. I think he came through to third, but he took about a minute out of Graham Hill during the course of the comeback. 65 British Grand Prix, where he drove on the ignition switch to keep the car going. 65 Indy 500, we haven't actually talked about that, a race he described as perfect. Um, it, it was it was very difficult to place that race because it, it all went to plan. He didn't sort of, even he said he didn't really have to fight adversity. It was just the best driver in the best car having the scheduled run. They even did one less pit stop than most of the others. They'd completely annihilated the field. 67 Italian Grand Prix we talked about, 66 Dutch Grand Prix fighting the, the bigger engine Brabham's, 63 Belgian Grand Prix which was appalling conditions and he won by nearly five minutes and then the 62 German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring which he, he himself picked out as his greatest drive uh, where he forgot to f- turn the fuel pumps on on the line and then charged back to fourth. Did actually have the leading three in uh, in in, uh, in sight almost. It was a Hill Surtees Gurney fight for the lead. One of the underrated Grand Prix of all time that one. Uh, and then had a big moment. Decided that that was probably uh, that was probably enough. So that's um, that's the ten. Now there is one famous race that's not in there. We did get we did get one letters. I got far less stick for this, which I'm not sure whether that's good or bad than I was expecting. But the one comment was that they'd put the 62 neighbouring thousand kilometres in where he turned up in the diminutive uh, Lotus and um, came through at the end of the first lap. Do you remember, Damo, how much it was? Was it 25 seconds or something ridiculous? And he just kept pulling away until he was overcome by exhaust fumes and crash. But I kind of took that to be a flagging up of the future sports car design rather than Clark's it was a you know lightweight load that that was where sports car racing was going up against all these old sort of dinosaurs so I I, I put that in the uh, the aforementioned and criticised honourable mentions list it didn't make my 10 anything missing there for you Damien pretty good list um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head good good that, that's good yeah, well done. I'm, I'm pleased well with done. that I'd be I'm pretty sure. annoyed if there's a race I'd missed I'm sure some listeners will uh yeah, someone will come up with something. We'll get into yeah, and well, I've, I've got a very much longer list, so yeah, drop me an email, and if it's not on there, then uh, yeah, get some sort of prize. I don't yeah. know what the prize would be. He, he really has got a longer list with a, with a, <laughs> with a lot of information, in it and uh, well, uh, he'll probably be sat here talking to himself long after the mics have been turned off. Oh, is that an option? Yeah, you can, okay, sit, you can sit in the darkened room, and uh, oh, why does it have to be dark? I want to be able to read my notes. Well, that's a good point. But it's automatic lights in here. If you don't move long enough, the lights go out. Yeah, that's true. So you'll have to you'll have to gesticulate your arms around and uh, generally uh, generally perform to nobody. Well, that's a suitably uh, random point to, <laughs> to finish on. I'm not really sure what we've uh, what we've proved in this, but it is always fascinating to delve into the careers of these drivers. You know, the debate will go on forever as to who's the greatest. The one thing you can say about Jim Clark is unquestionably he merits a place in that debate, and he's one of the one of the best half dozen 
uh, Grand Prix drivers of all time, and I suspect where you where you put him within that is probably down to down to personal taste. Well, thanks very much to Kevin Turner and Damien Smith for their insight into Jim Clark. I urge everyone to check out autosport.com for all the latest news and coverage of uh, slightly more modern goings-on in uh, in motorsport. But we do occasionally in our Autosport Plus subscriber area have some uh, retro features. And in fact, the, uh, the Jim Clark's Greatest li- uh, greatest Races uh, feature ran uh, earlier this year to coincide with the, the anniversary of, of the loss of Jim Clark. So there's, uh, there's something there for everyone. Also check out Autosport Magazine out every Thursday and sister titles F1 Racing and motorsport.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo. Written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.